Heavenly Father, thank you as we've heard Jesus say that you invest everything in coming to rescue the lost, even the life of your own son. Please will we hear that heart that you have for each one of us this morning as we hear words that might be difficult for us. Please would each of us come from church this morning having been built up and encouraged as disciples of Jesus. In his name, amen. I'd like you to imagine that you hear this from a friend of yours who goes to a different church. A year ago, their vicar started working very closely with one of their church wardens. He used to drive her home from PCC meetings because they lived close to each other and they wanted to save petrol. They enjoyed loads of inside jokes together. It seemed to be getting on really well, particularly when they were needing to work closely together on that building project. One time when the warden's husband was away on a business trip, the vicar offered to help her cook for the children. He used to stay over until late in the evening. All the neighbours knew about it. After a while, your friend and the other church warden spoke to him and his wife together because they thought the vicar and the warden were spending a bit too much time together. The vicar's wife looked uncomfortable, but he got angry with them and said there was nothing inappropriate. He made them feel bad for even asking. A few weeks after that conversation, the vicar's wife moved out to her mother's and the church warden moved in. They said they loved each other and were going to make it work. Your friend's colleagues on the town council felt so sorry for his wife. One person said they thought Vickers was supposed to be different. That Sunday, the vicar spoke on John 8 about the woman caught in adultery and said that Jesus was happy with what he and the church warden were doing. Your friend sounds confused. That was made up. No one's told me exactly that story. But someone has told me of something like that happening in their church. When things like this have happened, churches are usually split. Some people think that the person deserves another chance, even if they appear to show no remorse or repentance. Some people use it as a chance to challenge outdated ideas about morality. By far the most common reaction, however, is just deep grief over the way others in that town now feel they have no reason to take Jesus seriously. Because the church isn't just no different from the world, it even seems to be worse. Starting with a story that is close to home gives us our way into this new subject that Paul turns to as we resume the series in 1 Corinthians that we began a few weeks back. Uh, The series is called Seeing with Jesus' Eyes. Perhaps you know of another situation where someone claiming to represent the church behaved in a way that left even the people on the outside appalled. It's possible that this very public issue in 1 Corinthians 5 is what's causing all those divisions in chapter 1. I follow this person, I follow that person. Because it's perceived that these people are like the people who say it's all fine and these are the people who say no, you know. Some are boasting about how tolerant they are and accepting. And others are boasting about how holier than thou they're being. Key thing to notice though 
is that line, verse 1, is something even the pagans don't do. So perhaps that story doesn't do it. We don't even need to tell a story. Think about the abuses in the church to do with safeguarding. For a season, even now, the Church of England is renowned for being worse than the wider world on its care of vulnerable adults and young people. And sometimes part of the reason, and this is the case when I've read accounts of when these things have happened in churches, is because people within them have used Jesus' grace as an excuse for saying and doing nothing. Now, okay, if this is getting heavy, remember chapter one. This is who Paul's writing to. To God's church in Corinth, to you who have been called by God to be his own holy people. And then he goes on to say, I always thank God for you. Even when Jesus' grace is being used to justify evil, he can call them and us back to reality, to true freedom from cheap, fake grace to the radical new life that is real grace liberates us to live so that's what is happening this morning jesus is calling us all back to the real thing so verses one to two we've looked at them a bit already but this is sort of the first heading if you want to write it down jesus grace cannot be weaponized jesus grace cannot be weaponized There are plenty of voices inside and outside the church that use reasoning that goes something like this. Because of my understanding of grace, love and compassion, you Christians should stop doing something that makes you different from every other way of living and worshipping. Now, like I said, we don't know whether the reason the Corinthians are proud is because this guy who'd married their dad's wife was in their church. It's highly likely, though, that they see themselves as really serious about grace and forgiveness because there's someone there who the rest of the city thinks is the worst. Even when we say it like that, can we see the power of it, the seductive power of it? Aren't we supposed to love others? We don't want to be intolerant or judgmental, do we? If it's not hurting anyone, and it almost always is, just by the way, in the moment it's hard to see it. If it's not hurting anyone, shouldn't we just live and let live? And of course, the reason that's seductive is because there's something right about that. Everyone is welcome in church, of course. If anyone here was somehow in a relationship with their dad's wife, or if they were a convicted and released criminal, or anything else we can think of, Jesus is for them. Jesus is for you, if that is your story. Most people I speak with in church come with things on their heart that they are ashamed about. I have things that I am ashamed of doing this week that I've needed to repent of with tears. None of us is yet holy. 
In fact, this is the one thing that qualifies us to come around the altar and receive Jesus' body and blood, that we're not holy, that we need him to wash us. That's what the whole of the service up to now has been about. But here are three things that make this situation not like that. So that pride in having this guy in church with them is actually something that destroys and cheapens grace rather than showing it. Three things. He has been challenged about it and shows no sign of repentance. It is publicly known that the church supports this behaviour and the acceptance of this man is actually beginning to change how the church lives and therefore what it believes. That's always the way around. How are you living? Well, that's what you believe. And it's, it's hard to spot the difference. People actually were doing this were weaponizing compassion, weaponizing grace, when they criticized Christians for meeting during the pandemic, even when they were allowed to, because they said you're endangering other people by meeting together, even though Jesus com- commands us to do that. And we were allowed. People use the fact that we might be causing this damage over here to say, well, you shouldn't really be Christians. You shouldn't really obey Jesus. Jesus' grace, Jesus' compassion, Jesus' concern for others is being weaponized to destroy worship. To continue to allow this man to behave in this way, to stubbornly avoid repentance for something everyone can see is wrong, is to unmake church. Jesus' grace cannot be weaponized. Next, verse 3 to 5. Jesus' grace means intolerance of stubborn sin. Jesus' grace means intolerance of stubborn sin. There are some attitudes, some ways of behaving, some things that can be believed that destroy the fabric of church. Persistent, unrepentant sexual sin is one. And it's one the church has spent a lot of time talking about recently. But notice, greed, fraud, cheating or swindling, actively worshipping other gods, that's all there too. Verse 10. These things are public and they're the opposite of the life Jesus has called his people, his body, to live. If we say this way, living this way doesn't matter and refuse to change when someone challenges us about it, we cannot be part of Jesus' church. Now, remember, we're not talking about the daily struggle all of us have with these things. One of the key signs that we are, in fact, part of the church of Jesus Christ, part of the bungy expression of that church that fills heaven and will one day fill the earth, is if we do sin in this way, we hate it. We wish we hadn't. We're looking to change, to have Jesus put that sin to death. That's why we begin every service with confession and why we lay aside any personal grudges in the peace that we're going to do before we come round the altar. 
the situation we need to envisage just to help you get hold of it is someone coming to church, refusing to say the confession, arms folded, mouth shut, then treating us all terribly and then saying, you need to forgive me, that's your job. Now I'll break up your marriage, take all your money and you better not complain because that's judgmental. It's, it's ludicrous, isn't it? But that's, that's the kind of thing we're talking about here. There are stubborn patterns of sin that we must not tolerate in order to be church. Again, if you need another picture to get this, it's not an accident that the church is described as a body. Because bodies only exist by keeping some things outside. That's why the Bible talks about excommunicating people. And that's a serious word. Immediately it conjures up like the Spanish Inquisition or burn at the stake or all that horrible stuff, doesn't it? Like, I don't, that does for me. I don't know if it does for you. But if we can remove the baggage around the word, it simply means that this altar, this meal that embodies us, where we all take Jesus' body and blood into ourselves, where eating the same thing means we are in fact his body, it can only be for people who long to live like Jesus. Because bodies lose their integrity if they let anything in. There are some things that if you eat, you're not going to be a body anymore, aren't there? It's not possible to join something if we insist that the thing we're joining change so we can be exactly the way we were before. That's what, you know, that's destroying something. It's joining the football match and picking up the ball and then booting it over the hedge. Do you remember the, have it? Do you remember that? I can't remember what it was. I think it was a Carling ad or something. No, it was Strongbow. You remember that? Where the guy just picked up the football, poof, you know, and then went in and had a pint. Like, you can't do that if you're joining church. A Holy Trinity coming to communion is something that I leave to your conscience. That's the way the Church of England has addressed this issue. The, the Matthew 18 situation that we read about, that's more to do with secret sins, the stuff we carry around all the time. And, and that's what confession's about. It's like, okay, yeah, I did that this week. I hate it. I don't want that to be me. So I'm going to come and be healed by this communion. But this isn't that, is it? This isn't that. It's not secret. Everyone knows. This is public, stubborn sin, so it has to be addressed publicly. Now, I imagine all of us found handing over to Satan a difficult idea in this passage. It is a difficult idea. But we need to remember what that word means. He doesn't say the devil. He says the Satan. It's a title. It's not a name. It means the accuser. It means that this person, who actually is a Christian, but is refusing to live like one, needs to hear the accusation that we are otherwise protected from. All of us hear it. When we are repenting and following Jesus, we come to church to remember that the accuser has no power over us. But this person is willingly putting themselves in his power. So they need to feel it. So that they'll be saved, so they'll turn back, so they'll repent. 
And actually, if someone isn't really a Christian, they'll have no problem leaving church. They were like, well, I didn't want to go anyway. doesn't matter. But someone who is a Christian, someone this happens to, said, look, you're living this way. Everyone knows you're living this way. We've warned you. You're not willing to change. You can't be part of this when you're living like that. I've known situations where that has happened to someone and it makes them miserable. And they realize, it's good that they're miserable because it's their feelings matching what they're doing how they're living. And look at the reason it's there in the passage. It's so that that flesh, that thing that is dragging us away to things that kill us in the end, will be destroyed and and the person will be saved. A vicar friend of mine speaking on this passage said this, and I wonder if it resonates with you. There is no unhappier person in the world than a Christian who is deliberately sinning. Jesus won't leave us in the dark if we're pursuing something that ultimately takes us away from him. The situation this excommunication is seeking to address is when that natural accusation that rises up when someone is publicly turning away from Jesus is drowned out by all the wonders of fellowship, by all the people saying, oh, it's okay, you're loved. You know, that's what happens to people in church. I hope that's what happens here. If, If you're with people in church, everyone makes you feel good about yourself. That's how it should be, because you're forgiven, you're redeemed. But if that's happening and masking a deep problem that you're not willing to deal with, that can't carry on. It's not good for the person. And actually, there's even something else here. You know the bit about yeast? Uh, okay, great bitch break off, anyone? Uh, what, what's the thing they're always worried about when they're trying to bake or, or make a cake or something? Uh, I haven't actually watched it, but like, you know, what, what are they always saying if like they're waiting for something to rise or something like that? Anyone remember? I, I don't know. I mean, maybe no one watched it. Apparently they're always saying, oh, I don't have enough time. I don't have enough time. A key thing with yeast in bread is you've got to wait around for it to do its thing, haven't you? It takes a long time for it to get the bubbles nicely and fluff your soup by I don't bake. I don't know. Just pick your favourite recipe or something. And therefore, whenever there's yeast in the Bible, the idea is we're hanging around when we should be anxious to leave. So, so this person hanging around in the world, one foot in his old life, saying, I actually quite like it. I don't really want to leave that way. Well, it ends up bubbling and growing and filling the whole way we think about church. You can see that in the safeguarding inquiries that have happened. One church turns a blind eye, then another church, then another. And suddenly we're in this position where we're having to dig out years of abusive situations that were covered up. The whole pattern here is about Paul doing the opposite of covering up, dealing with it now before it spreads, bringing it into the open and calling it what it is. Jesus' grace means intolerance of stubborn sin. And just a final thing, verse 6 to 13, we, we can't look at it in detail. Jesus' gracious judgment is for inside church, not outside. It's for inside, not outside. I believe that this warning 
is only hypothetical for Holy Trinity Bungie. Yes, all of us are sinners. But I don't believe anyone who wants to be part of this church is currently refusing to repent of sin like this guy. Let me say that very clearly. All of us are wanting to move towards holiness. One day, one communion meal at a time. And for some of us, the battles will be long with a lot of setbacks. If that's you, if that's us, this passage is not about that. I really hope you've all heard that. But it may be there are some this morning who are saying, okay, this isn't for me yet, but I am interested and I want to keep exploring. Now, it's wonderful you're here. You're welcome. Even if there is something you're doing that the church says is wrong and you want to keep doing it, that's fine. You're welcome to come here. There may be all kinds of ways of living as a Christian that you're not convinced about yet. Please keep listening in. See what we do at communion. Hear us publicly confess our sins and repent. As long as anyone is not yet convinced, their life decisions are none of our business. Bible says so. It's none of our business what someone who isn't a Christian is doing. That's why I'm not going to campaign for laws to change in our country. It's none of my business what people who aren't Christians are doing. If they come into church, yeah, we'll talk about it. But if they're outside church, it's absolutely nothing to do with us. But if someone is in church and is looking on the outside, eventually my prayer is that they, you, would want to come to this altar and be part of the body of Jesus. And that means turning away from those things, however long it takes. Jesus doesn't change to accommodate us. It must be the other way around. Or else there is no good news. No hope of freedom from deceitful desires. No relief from the selfishness and pain of the world we all know wearily well. Jesus' grace cannot be weaponized. Jesus' grace means intolerance of stubborn sin. And Jesus' gracious judgment is for inside church, not outside. Before I pray, let's just have a moment to listen to what the Spirit may be saying to each of us. Let's just be quiet.